Simple Beep, episode 73, the iMac at 20. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And we have another anniversary-themed episode this time. We are doing our episode on the 20th anniversary of the iMac. And I think we mentioned this a couple months ago on the show. We're doing this at the anniversary of the release of the product because, I don't know, we set precedent with that doing some anniversaries for products in the past and we're sticking to it. So you may have already seen a lot of iMac coverage a couple months ago that was corresponding to the anniversary of the announcement of the iMac. But we're going to get into the product itself and the whole product line in a way in this episode. But before we do, we have a couple items of non-iMac follow-up and then uh, one iMac follow-up that'll get us into the topic. Our previous episode was about the 10-year anniversary of the App Store. And there was an article at the Wall Street Journal that came out uh, after we published our episode that was a, a newly released interview with Steve Jobs covering how the first month of the App Store had gone. And since it is at the Wall Street Journal, it's behind their paywall. If you're not a subscriber, you won't be able to not only read it, but actually listen to the interview with Steve Jobs. Thankfully, the good people at Mac Stories posted a summary of what Steve said in the interview and what the article itself said. Um, there are some of the same figures that we covered in our episode, but I thought that the the one thing that Mac Stories thought was worth mentioning that I also think is very cool is uh, if you listen to the interview with Jobs, you get a sense that he is genuinely surprised and pleased with how well the store is doing after only one month. So uh, I don't know if it's enough to get me personally to subscribe to the Wall Street Journal, just listen to this one interview. But uh, if you are a subscriber, know that there is that little piece of content out there for you. Some interesting additional statistics here and some that were familiar to me. So I think that this was the source of some of the things that I had mentioned in the episode. I think the statistics about exactly how many apps were available at the beginning on day one and what percentage of them were games versus other apps and what percentage were free and of the paid ones, which uh, price tiers they fell into. That quote from this interview got pulled out and maybe published in a Wall Street Journal article back 10 years ago and got then cited around in other sources. But this gives a lot of additional information. It's interesting to see that all mesh up and uh, give a more complete history. You said uh, maybe not enough to get you to shell out a little bit of money just for that one interview. Uh, the next thing, though, is something that I did shell out a little bit of money for. Uh, a while back, we mentioned that a documentary on the Newton was being produced called Love Notes to Newton, and it has now come out. Uh, I believe it was a Kickstarter project or something similar to that. It was crowdfunded in one way or another. And I will admit that I was not one of the backers when it was first up for crowdfunding, but now it is out and you can purchase it or rent it a la carte through Vimeo, because I guess that's Vimeo's latest pivot is to be sort of like a premium distribution method for video as opposed to just another YouTube. And uh, we'll put a link in the show notes. I think it's like 
four or five bucks to rent and 12 bucks to purchase. And then you can stream it on Vimeo's site or you can actually download the full video. So I downloaded the full video. It's like four gigabytes, threw it in my Plex library. I haven't gotten to it yet, but I'm definitely going to watch it soon. I've heard from a couple people who have watched it that it is very good, very well put together. And I have to give full credit to the production team behind Love Notes to Newton for distributing it in this way, because I think we've heard about a lot of these kind of projects, whether it's things that we've talked about here on Simple Beep or other kind of crowdfunded documentary or movie projects that I've seen, where they'll do the crowdfunding and then either it goes dark completely or they do successfully produce it and release it in some limited forum, but then anyone who wasn't in on the crowdfunding campaign, finally it comes out and there's all this publicity around it. And it's like, well, it showed on one screen at a film festival in Denver and you will never be able to purchase it. It's like, well, they put all this work in. They have a digital file somewhere. Just let me exchange money for your file so I can watch your movie. And that's exactly what has happened here. So I'm really pleased to see that and encourage you, if you were not a backer like me, I'll admit it, uh, you should go and check out Love Notes to Newton. Like I said, if you only plan on watching it once, uh, y- you can actually do a rental and it's just a few bucks. So check it out. And I think uh, after we watch it, my guess is that we'll probably give it a little bit more of a thorough rundown on a future episode. Yeah. Uh, I just want to ditto everything you just said. I was not a backer, uh, but I am looking forward to using this uh, really cool monetization model for distributing this documentary, uh, probably renting it and watching it maybe in between the time we record this and post this episode. Uh, yeah, like you said, whether it's at Vimeo or something like uh, Gumroad, I've seen um, having the opportunity to kind of pay for the file, whether or not you were part of the crowdfunding campaign is really cool. And I hope more creators of any kind of media start doing this. If any of you know the people behind the General Magic documentary. Tell them to do this, please. Because that's another one that's on my list. Uh, I think it showed at the Tribeca Film Festival, and I'm in New York, but I missed the announcement. And then looking back, I think I would have had to buy like an entire pass to the festival to go see one documentary. So it wasn't going to happen anyway. <laughs> and I, w- I would love to pay 12 bucks and see that because it also looks like an excellent little project. Okay, moving on now to our main topic, the iMac. So we've talked about the iMac before on the show. This is our little follow-up segue here. We talked about it on episode number 39 with Stephen Hackett. That was back when he was right at the end of making, finishing his iMac G3 collection of all 13 flavors and colors of iMacs. And we talked a lot about what made that computer special, the first IMAX, the CRT IMAX. And we're not going to rehash a whole lot of that. The one interesting thing that is sort of follow-up from that is the, uh, I guess, an update on his collection. So he had all of these computers. His, his FedEx and UPS guys hated him <laughs> because he kept getting all these heavy boxes delivered to him. Then he had them all at his house and then at his office and then in his new studio at the time, and they were taking up way too much room, and they needed a new home so that he could continue to expand his collection for other things. But he didn't want to break them up and just 
put them back on eBay or anything like that. But he has found a permanent home for them, and they are at the Henry Ford Museum just outside of Detroit. And Stephen put up a vlog. He did a trip to Detroit and gave a couple talks there at the Detroit Maker Fair. And all of his iMacs are now not just in the collection of the museum, because in the collection of a museum can mean in a storage closet somewhere. That Indiana Jones scene. Very much so. That is uh, that is not far from the truth at all. But they are actually, at least for the moment, prominently out on display as part of a broader exhibit on translucent design, uh, which has a lot of contemporary and even older products that have lots of clear plastic design and just what that meant for consumer electronics. Uh, So you should definitely check out his video. And I'm very pleased that those iMacs have found a happy home together. And as kind of a neat segue from where those iMacs currently are being presented in this translucency exhibit, we also did a full episode of our show, episode number 23, on kind of the consumer product world that came out of the iMac G3, uh, mostly about the accessories that were meant to be used directly with it, not just the, uh, the the Bondi Blue toaster ovens and things like that. But if you want to get the full spectrum of Simple Beep coverage on the G3 iMac line, episode 39 is our episode with Steven, and episode 23 is about the accessory ecosystem that came up around it. And now you are here, episode 73. It's been a little while, but <laughs> like I said, we're going to talk about the whole progression of the iMac line, but we would be remiss if we didn't go back to the anniversary that we are celebrating, which is the actual release of the Bondi Blue iMac G3 Revision A, short-lived, but uh, there it was on August 15th of 1998, so 20 years ago almost exactly as we're recording and releasing this episode. Naturally, the next giant upgrade, revision, etc. of the iMac product line would be the iMac G4. And we, we can say this with the benefit of hindsight, but it was also pretty clear to Apple fans and watchers of the company at the time. So there was a regular January event that Apple uh, was known to make a keynote at, we, we, the famous iPhone keynote was a January event, and there was one coming up in 2002. And the timing seemed about right. There had been some rumors that the iMac was going to make the leap to the G4 processor. And before the keynote happened, Time Magazine leaked not only that, yes, this machine would be released, but also what it looked like. And I think we'll get into a discussion about this machine's design. Uh, but yes, the the reveal before Steve Jobs could do it himself of the iMac G4 happened on the cover of Time Magazine with a, a photo of the product, Steve Jobs's face on the display, and the headline, Flat Out Cool. This was available on Time.com and apparently even on some uh, real-world newsstands, at least uh, in, in the Eastern Time Zone, before the keynote happened. Yeah, I think that Time Magazine would... Typically, like if you were a home subscriber, it would typically show up on Tuesdays, I think. So that would be like safely after the keynote. And maybe for newsstands would also go on sale sort of like in the afternoon on a Monday. But 
they they were uh, new to the web at that point, and uh, oh well, you'll get preview access by uh, by looking at our website. And but this was something that was not supposed to be a preview access. I think that it's interesting to point out here just how much time had elapsed between the G three and the G four. So it, it was about three and a half years that the iMac G three and its iconic gumdrop shape was the face of the iMac line, which I think that it's interesting to think of that in terms of the timeline as opposed to the cultural impact, because the design is so iconic that we place it pretty high on a pedestal in terms of things that Apple has done. You've got the original Mac, you've got the iPod and the earbuds, you've got the iMac G3, you've got the iPhone. These are some of their biggest design achievements. And to think that it was a product that only lasted in that form for three and a half or four years makes it seem kind of small, especially because we're now celebrating 20 years of that product line. It's only about a fifth of the total that was occupied by the CRT-based IMAX. And that totally makes sense. And that was the heart of the iMac G4 redesign was that Apple was pushing ever forward, the same as with the original iMac. They got rid of the floppy drive because it was legacy technology that they did not see a future for. Similarly, they got rid of the CRT monitor because it was legacy technology that they did not see a future for because at this point they were looking to, I mean, simply the technology was better. It, it didn't weigh 40 pounds anymore. <laughs> and to that point, I think that this this keynote that introduced the iMac G4 and specifically the segment of it about the iMac G4 is one of the good Steve Jobs presentations because it it kind of pokes a little fun at everyone knows that something like this is coming, not just a G4, but a flat screen all in one device. And just like when the iPhone was uh, was announced, there was that slide of an iPad or an iPod click wheel with a rotary telephone control on it. And so there's a similar thing in this keynote where Steve says, okay, so what's, what's a flat screen iMac going to look like? Does it look like this? And he just chops off the back bulbous half of an iMac G3. Of course not. <laughs> and that's what, you know, that's a design conversation that led to the eventual shape and design of the iMac G4, uh, affectionately known as the iLamp. Well, there was lots of speculation about that because at this time, Apple had already shipped their first LCD monitors in the cinema display and studio display. And they had that, they had sort of three feet and clear plastic, and then the display itself, which was maybe a couple inches thick. And people were basically wondering, how do you tack on a computer to this? Right? Because obviously it's the screens that Apple is already producing themselves or sourcing themselves. And so how do you tack on a computer to this and make it look good? But yeah, a lot of them looked very bad. I'm going to see if I can find some mock-ups and link them in the show notes, because there were ones where, I'm remembering this one, they took the cinema display, they photoshopped in some larger speakers in the bottom corners, and then instead of having the full bulge like the iMac G3 in the back, it only bulged out at the bottom. 
and it looked really bad. <laughs> uh, but it was the best that people on the outside could imagine given what Apple's products looked like at the time. But instead, we got another iconic design, uh, affectionately known as the eye lamp. Though for listeners of the show, we probably don't need to describe it to you, but just in case, it was a, a kind of a floating LCD, initially 15 inches, and then also a 17-inch model uh, later in July of 2002, with uh, a fairly chunky white bezel, and then an additional clear bezel around that, suspended to a, uh, a hemisphere uh, made out of white plastic by a uh, like the perfectly weighted chrome arm that could move uh, kind of left to right, pan left to right, move up and down, and tilt to get the the right viewing angle. It was it. I think Ed, you have you said this is your this is like your number one Mac design. Yeah, I I love this design, and I I mean I recognize that especially the hemispherical base portion of the iMac G4 is outdated at this point. It was built around the fact that you had to fit a three and a half inch hard drive in there. You needed space for uh, a CD drive, optical drive, and for that to actually you know, retract and, and protrude from the machine. And uh, while they made their attempts at cooling this device, which put all of the vents on the top, which I think I've mentioned this before, was a clever design when the machine is brand new. But eventually, because there's no way of covering the vent without actually basically overheating the computer, dust goes down inside, and then the fans turn on and creates this wonderful spray effect, um, which is very difficult to clean um, and, and pretty nasty. But other than that... Uh, I mean, so so the base, I think, w- you could scrap the base at this point, you know, in 2018. But the thing that they just haven't replicated is the degrees of freedom on moving the monitor. So if you have an iMac today, it tilts in one axis. It'll tilt uh, towards you or away from you. And then I guess you can, like, slide the foot around if you need to turn it from left to right. But every time that I do that, I feel like I'm going to pull a cable out. And so the iMac, as it is today, is really much more fixed in space. But the the iMac G4 had all of this freedom that made it feel better ergonomically for a single person and really made it feel great for collaboration in the same way that now if you have like a tablet or a really light laptop and you want to show somebody something, you can just like hold it in one hand and show it to them. Same with this, you could just swivel the monitor, uh, whether someone was sitting at a desk with you, had just come and was looking over your shoulder. Like There were so many ways of making that screen visible to a person at any angle, which is probably a good thing because the viewing angles, like <laughs> the viewing angles on the screen, if you looked at it off axis, were not very good and you would lose color fidelity very quickly. Oh yes, this is way before the advent of IPS displays. Uh, and just to recap the life cycle of the iMac G4, it was announced in January 2002, just the 15-inch model again. The 17-inch model, uh, widescreen, came out in July 
both models got a like a G4 slash memory slash hard disk bump in February of 2003. And then the final revision across the product line, uh, both in speed bumps and the addition of a 20-inch display still anchored to the same hemisphere base without toppling over. Yeah, I've never seen one of those, but I feel like uh, they would seem precarious. <laughs> yeah. Uh, came out in fall 2003. And I don't recall exactly when because i also didn't see you know like any of these models let alone um being able to discern like the february 2003 from the autumn 2003 but somewhere along the line of the imac g4 we've covered apple's typography in a previous episode as well the original imac g4 15 inch had branding in apple garamond and the final models of imac g4 had the branding written on it in the Myriad Pro typeface. So, I don't know, for what it's worth, <laughs> that transition also happened during this product line. Yeah, just to wrap up this design, I think one of the reasons, besides the practical points that I've just discussed, that the iMac G4 was another really big successful design was because it was so playful and unique in the same way that the iMac G3 had been playful and unique one of those great moments in, you said it was a good Steve Jobs demo, one of those where he basically says, we're throwing away something that we had created that was amazing and perfect and new, and we're going to replace it with something that is equally surprising to you and equally great in new, completely different ways. So again, the the Time Magazine cover was a big reveal to the world, and people looked at it and went, wait, that's a computer? In the same way that they looked at the iMac G3 and went, wait, that blue thing is a computer. Uh, Apple really pulled that off twice in the history of the iMac line. I think we'll see basically only twice. Um, This was the last time that they made something, maybe up until the iPhone or uh, the recent iPad Pro ads, uh, you know, like the what's a computer ad, where people have looked at things and gone, wait a minute, that thing is a computer. <laughs> um, but they really did have fun with it. They recognized that it was a playful design. There's uh, an ad that I had forgotten about, but we'll link to a YouTube video of it, where uh, a man walks past an iMac G4 in a shop front, like after the store has closed at night. And the computer, because it sort of has this anthropomorphic quality to it, or it's like uh, Luxo, the Pixar lamp. It And it's animated in that way where it starts to follow him and he notices this and he goes back into the window and starts like making motions at it. And the computer is mimicking his motions, moving the monitor around the way that he's moving his head around. And then the upshot of the ad is that he sticks his tongue out at it and the optical drive ejects. And he has a good laugh. And other people on the street uh, think he's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, I mean, that's maybe one of the most playful Apple ads, period. Um, Apart from just sort of the, maybe like the energy of the iPod ads where people just like dance and rock out to music. And to go along with the machine itself and this playful design, Apple also partnered with some companies to add additional peripherals that were 
in sort of the same vein. I don't know if they're an, exactly a matching design, but they definitely had some spirit to them. And one that was actually bundled with the iMac G4, I remember my family, when we got the iMac G4, had these. They were the Apple Pro speakers, and they were powered by Harman Kardon speaker technology. And these were the ones that were the little globes that had the the actual speaker cone looked like it was almost just suspended in these clear plastic globes and angled upwards. And you could set these on either side of the iMac. And as I recall, they even had a quasi-proprietary port where they had one of those extra long mini plugs. So basically only those speakers worked with that port on the iMac G4. I, I guess also around that time, um, maybe even back to the iMac, end of the iMac G3 era, were the other Harman Kardon speakers, like the uh, the sound sticks that similarly had tiny little tweeters suspended in clear plastic. And I forget the name of the subwoofer, but the one that looks like a jellyfish. It was the iSub. <laughs> Naturally. I think we covered this in our one of our iMac G3 episodes, but the the sub was tuned for the like back half of the iMac G3 line that had the more translucent cases and the slot loading CD drive because the two built-in speakers on that era of iMac G3 I think were also Harman Kardon cones or or parts, you know. Um so yeah, there's there's a lineage here, but it I think like you said, like there is something special about the iMac G4, probably more for the space confinements of a hemisphere, but also to kind of go along with with this incredibly new design that no one had anticipated, breaking out those individual little speaker cones into their own transparent balls that sat on your desk. Uh, it was it was a cool choice. Yeah, and one I think final important thing to mention on this generation of the iMac before we go on another reason that it was a little bit of an inflection point is to match up its timeline with the rest of what Apple is doing. So recall that it was introduced in January of 2002. So this is right in the middle of the classic to OS X transition. But these G4s, these iMac G4s, were the first iMacs that actually shipped with any version of Mac OS X pre-installed. And obviously they could they could dual boot and could run classic Mac OS. And that's what we did on our iMac G4 for a long time. But it was the first machine that I personally used OS X on. So that's another important milestone for the iMac G4. So now let's move on to the next major iMac revision. And again, this comes along with the next generation of processors, the G5. And I think that this machine is important in the larger context of the iMac product line and the Mac line uh, for two reasons. And one of them is its actual industrial design. Uh, like Ed said, the iMac G4 was something that surprised everybody. The iMac G5 was maybe what we all expected the iMac G4 to be and has remained largely the same since its release to what we understand an iMac to be today. And I understand why we got to the design that we got with the iMac G5. It was effectively Apple admitting that some of those early design mock-ups for the G4 were 
kind of what they had in mind, but because they were ugly, that's why they didn't release them and they went with the other design. This was them saying, yes, all along we've wanted to put the whole package into a true all-in-one. It's not separated by an arm or anything. It's just a display with all of the computer internals, storage, RAM, etc., all in one piece, the same as the original iMac, just now fitting the new LCD as opposed to the CRT form factor. And I think the second reason that the G5 is important in the context of the Macintosh product line is that its advertising campaign and the slogan that accompanied it was from the creators of iPod. And we'll put a link to one of the magazine ads that show this in the show notes. It's got the iPod in a dock and the iMac G5 in profile behind it. And they're, you know, tilted at the same angle. They're both, you know, white rectangles, basically. Uh, But I think that this may be the first time where Apple realizes it's more of a consumer mobile electronics company than it is a personal computer for your desk or your lap company. Definitely. And I think that people have debated the halo effect for a long time. How how great was the iPod halo effect once the iPod was available with Windows PCs and iTunes could run on Windows? Lots of people bought iPods because they were the clearly superior portable music device. And then the question was, how many of those people actually went out and bought Macs? And I think that one of the things that's lost maybe in discussions of that now are people wonder, well, to what extent was Apple pushing that? Well, this ad shows very clearly. they It was overt. They were saying, you have an iPod and you love it. You will love our new computer as well. Uh, and look, they even look like they go together. And boy, they look like they are straight from the desk of Johnny Ive in this ad that we are going to link, right? I mean, there's a blue background and then everything else is white and aluminum. The iPod is white and aluminum. The dock is white. The foot of the iMac is aluminum. The case of it is white plastic. The text is gray and white and the Apple logo is pure white. And that's at the point where I think it had only been a year or so that Apple had been using the solid color Apple logo as opposed to the rainbow one. So this is this is the new look. So the iMac G5 was released in August 2004. Like Ed did for the G3, it's worth saying that the G4 line was basically two and a half years in total. The iMac G5 initially was released in a 17-inch and a 20-inch model, so no more... 15-inch display, and also no more uh, closer-to-square 3-to-2 aspect ratio display. We're all widescreen from here on out. These are 16 by 10, I think, at this point. So eventually we get to 16 by 9, which is interesting because one of the... Well, there were a couple of minor revisions to the iMac G5. There was one in... May of 2005 that added uh, an ambient light sensor on the monitor for the first time. I mean, I think we take that for granted now, but it's an interesting feature to uh, put in a desktop machine, especially. I think that people thought that there was more of a need for that in a laptop where you're constantly changing environments. Uh, And I think that it could even be distracting on a desktop. I think I turned that off on my 
desktop Mac and just adjust the brightness myself because otherwise, you know, I'm, I'm in a room that has a window and on a nice day, I'll have it open and a cloud goes by and suddenly the brightness on the screen overcompensates and is suddenly much darker and it would be way less distracting if it just stayed a little bit too bright. And if I wanted to just tap a couple of keys, <laughs> funny little feature. The other thing that came in later revisions, though, that really speaks to the design of this Mac and what Apple software, like you said, as almost a consumer electronics company, is that this was the iMac that got uh, the built-in eyesight and front row with the built-in uh, IR sensor and the packaged remote that goes with it. And that makes a, a lot of sense. At this time, uh, HDTV adoption was picking up steam as well. And people saw these iMacs and said, well, there's so much focus on the LCD screen. It almost just looks like a small TV. And that was exactly what the front row features were for, so that you could access your media library from across the room with a remote, basically treating your iMac as a small TV. One of my favorite not-so-publicized features of this iMac was that it had a magnet in the lower right corner of the case as you're looking at it, as you're using it. And the front row remote, the very first white plastic Apple remote, had a magnet inside it. And somehow this all worked without messing with, you know, like the hard drive inside that uh, if you didn't want to lose your remote, you could just kind of stick it to the lower right side of your iMac and it would stay there until you needed it again. There are magnets in, you know, multiple places on Apple products to this day. The the MacBooks and MacBook Pros still close with a magnetic latch. And the iPads have the magnets for smart covers and the like. And I've definitely pulled the trick where <laughs> I've been working uh, with something printed out and I've got like a paper clip and I need to just stash it somewhere. And when I had a MacBook, I would often just stick it to the magnet in the top of the display. <laughs> and I remember people, when I was sharing an office, people would walk by and see me do this and they're like, what did you just do? <laughs> Are you a wizard? It's like, no, there's a magnet there. <laughs> so uh, it's pretty easy to sneak these little magnets in places. And yeah, they're not very strong. They're not going to um, they're not going to erase your hard drive by getting too close to it. That was uh, shielded and in a different part of the case. But yeah, the front row features came to be a big feature of the iMac G5 and encouraged people to maybe put it in different places in their house where they could use it as a little bit of a media center as well as a productivity device uh, or encourage people to buy iMacs for their kids going off to college and then, oh, well, you have a desktop computer and you don't need to have a TV in your room because you can watch all of your stuff on on your even better high-res display in your iMac as opposed to a cheap SD TV that you would buy in 2004. I mean, I I think I still bought a new SD TV after that because I was in college and HD TVs were multiple hundreds of dollars and not in my budget. Uh, so it could be a, a real advantage to have high quality video 
right in your iMac. One of the other things that came out of those front row features was the iTV and then first generation Apple TV essentially looked exactly the same. The front row software and the way that that interfaced to an iTunes library really looked the same as the Apple TV software for the first maybe couple generations of its life. That's right. I forgot about that. And we, we've talked about it on the show, but that first generation Apple TV still required you to have a Mac somewhere that it could essentially buffer and stream the media from rather than having it on its own uh, internal storage. Such a weird model. And just wrapping that up, I mean, the front row interface really was a lot like an iPod blown up and given a fresh coat of paint. And the remote that you had basically had, it was a five button remote and had the same buttons as an iPod would. So yeah, the whole from the creators of iPod, they actually wanted you, you they acknowledged that there's a full-fledged Mac in there, but by the end of the iMac G5 lifespan, they also wanted you to use it basically as a desktop iPod. The next model of iMac actually retained the very same case as the late model G5s with the built-in eyesight and the, the front row IR sensor and remote, but it had a completely new processor, as has been the case every time we've made this jump. The very first Intel Macintosh machines were iMacs. These were uh, previewed, announced, and released in January of 2006. 17-inch and 20-inch machines. The MacBook Pro was the, uh, the one more thing of that keynote, so I think that may have stolen some of the thunder. Because even though that was uh, more or less the same case as the PowerBook G4s it replaced... That was the first time an eyesight had been built into a laptop, as well as, I think, the IR sensor, or maybe not. Maybe the last G4 PowerBooks had the IR sensor. Any case, I feel like the Intel iMac is, is, a, is a little overlooked. Well, yeah, I think also the, the MacBook got all of the press because it was jumping two processors because of the inability to fit a G5 into a PowerBook without it just turning into a puddle of liquid metal. <laughs> um, that meant that there never was a PowerBook G5. That was part of the entire reason for the Intel transition. And so that was a much bigger leap than uh, people expected that, okay, well, if, if Mac OS X runs on Intel, well, of course, then they can slap an Intel processor in literally the same case in an iMac and just have it work as expected. Uh, the, the portables were really just, I mean, Despite or maybe because of the fact that they were one more thing in that announcement, they were the big story. The first Intel iMacs were Core Duo processors. Uh, I think we've covered this in our transition episode too, but uh, I think the first Intel Mac Mini was the only thing to get a Core Solo. And then uh, a lot of initial Intel Macs were Core Duo, but pretty quickly they moved on to Core 2 Duo, which I think was 64-bit. And this uh, this initial case for the Intel iMac got that same processor bump uh, without completely redoing the computer in September of 2006 and also got a 24-inch model, which I think would make that specific. It's either the 20-inch G4 or the 24-inch white Intel iMac have got to be like the shortest lived computers in, in Apple's modern Apple's lineup. Besides the original iMac G3 Rev A, which lasted like two months, literally from August 1998 to October 1998. 
So next we're up to, geez, basically the current iMac era with the release of aluminum iMacs in August of 2007. So that's another place where it's interesting to take a pause on the timeline and say, okay, we're in the current iMac era. They uh, look the same. They're made of the same materials. They're running the same family of processors, more or less. They're still running Intel x86 processors. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're running i5s and i7s and i9s and Xeons even at this point, but as opposed to Core 2 Duos, but really just evolution over 11 years. So the majority of the iMac's life from the outside, we haven't had any of those big aha moments or surprises that we got with some frequency in the first five or six years of the product line. Right. So the the aluminum iMac is, uh, like Ed said, more or less the iMac we know today, where the the entire case is made of aluminum. The uh, the kind of the chin under the display is aluminum. The back is aluminum. The foot is aluminum. And then the display has a black bezel running around it, and you know the the computer flows from that. There's a, a more or less hidden webcam on top of the display, and the ports are on the back. And in this era of iMac, where optical drives were still relevant, the optical drive is side mounted on uh, on the right side of the case. So, like you said, Brian, the General external appearance didn't change for another couple of years, even though there was some change to the process. In 2009, they came out with unibody enclosures for the iMac. This is more getting them up to the industrial process that they were using for their portables at this point. And the unibody process, as Apple has touted, and you can see their crazy how it's made videos show how they drill out these shards of aluminum and then melt them back down and have zero waste uh, carving out impossibly intricate shapes out of solid blocks of metal. It's really quite fascinating. It also makes them harder to repair. Um, but it is an you know interesting industrial process that Apple has applied now across the line as of 2009 to the IMAX. At this point, they still had those optical drives and SD card slots on the side of the machine. I have a point to make here, which is that that kind of still made them feel like computers rather than just displays was the fact that even though you don't have a, you know, I mean, the optical drives on iMacs had all of their problems. I mean, the original iMacs had the thing where where you had to pull it out uh, like a portable CD player. Um, or like a lousy notebook CD player optical drive on like you can still get on Windows laptops today. Uh, and then they went to slot loading, which was nice. The, uh, the G4 went back to the tray, but it was the auto, uh, auto ejecting tray. Uh, and then with these, it's back to slot loading, vertical slot loading, um, which, you know, could throw some people off, but I think once people had those kind of slot loading drives in their cars and everything, it was, a very natural interaction to have. But there was still this interface that you dealt with on a regular basis on the computer. And then in the next generation, which we have here in our outline as the slim unibody iMac, this is where the optical drive is eliminated entirely. Another uh, 
pain point for some people, but uh, very true to the IMAX existence, right? Uh, get rid of the floppy drive, now get rid of the DVD drive. Who, who uses DVDs anymore? You don't even want DVD quality video. That's like the bad quality video now. Um, and it takes up space. And that means it takes up metal, and that means it takes up cost, right? So really narrowing down this case. It got a lot of criticism because people were saying, oh, now it's just a laptop on a stick. Why do they need to make it thinner and lighter? It's an iMac. I'm not carrying it around in my pocket. <laughs> um, but one of the interesting things that I find about that and the fact that the iMac now from the front is just a display. There's nothing on the side either. Everything is around the back. I still catch myself doing this sometimes, and I definitely see this if you set up an iMac for someone who's had an iMac for a while but just hasn't updated theirs. You set it all up. It's a beautiful screen on a foot, one power cable before you start putting peripherals in. It comes with a wireless keyboard and trackpad or mouse, and you've got it all set up, and you go, how the hell do I turn this on? Because the power button, as well, is on the back. And we're well past the era of turning on your Mac with a key on your keyboard, especially with a Bluetooth keyboard. It's like it's been reduced so much to just the screen that it's, at moments, it's almost frustrating. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Also, with the SD card slot, they retained it on these machines. It's, I mean, it still exists on the iMac Pro today, but it's around the back. And it's a pain to put an SD card in an iMac. It doesn't feel like it actually clicks in properly because the whole case is curving around it. It's an awkward angle. You definitely can't do it blind. So you have to stand up, leer over the top of your iMac, uh, put it in there. You can, you can eject it uh, or, you know, remove it uh by just by feel but it's uh there are inconveniences to this design that uh places so much emphasis on just the screen and uh speaking of that screen the the very first aluminum imax retained the 20 and 24 inch sizes from the outgoing white plastic imax and i think ed you mentioned like these were probably 16 to 10 uh aspect ratio. And then the unibody process gave us the sizes that we still have today, the large 27 inch display and the 21.5 inch display that I think are now 16 by nine and more cinematic. And I think it's, it's worth noting that Apple still had their external monitors throughout this, but they, it went from the three sizes of uh, brushed aluminum to just one size of black bezel which was initially 24 inches to match the largest iMac, but somewhere in the middle of the unibody and slim unibody iMacs, we got the bump to the 27-inch first LED display and then later Thunderbolt display and now no display, buy it from LG. <laughs> and then the the 21.5-inch slim unibody iMac, which was the, the slim iMacs were released in November of 2012. Uh, not accounting for speed bumps and maybe upgrades to what the base level includes, that model is still for sale today In as we record this, August of 2018, the 21.5-inch slim unibody iMac from November 2012. It's, it's not as bad as the Mac Mini, 
But it is worth pointing out that it's a Mac that doesn't have a retina screen and comes with a spinning hard drive. Like even a fusion drive is an option. So like the kind of the two table stakes for modern computing of a screen where you can't see the pixels and solid state storage are are still present in Apple's lineup, not just in the MacBook Air, which at least has uh, SSD, but the base level iMac as well. Wow, we are uh, we are further up the outline than I thought when we would say, and this computer is actually still for sale. <laughs> um, because it looks like we have uh, another couple of evolutions to go to get us to the actual present. Um, the first one of those is the Retina iMac. And I think the Retina iMac is important because it debuted with the 5K iMac. And maybe, I, I had said that in the history of the iMac line, there were maybe only two times, the first one in the G4, where people really went, wow. Just the existence of the 5K iMac was another wow moment in the iMac product lineup. But this was at a point where Apple had introduced Retina starting with the iPhone 4, which was a, seemed like a manageable size to pack that many pixels in. And then I remember getting the iPad third generation and going, oh my gosh, there are so many pixels. I, I think I, I can link to a tweet where I have a picture of the box and I was unboxing it and I said, there are so many pixels in this box. <laughs> like there are more pixels in this box than have ever been in a box before. <laughs> then they had Retina displays on MacBook Pros. But then again, this was a place where it was like a two times leap because people were just starting to talk about 4K TVs and pixel doubling what was available in 1080p displays. And Apple said, that's great, but wouldn't it be great if you could see that and have your final cut controls around it? Boom. <laughs> and they were basically out of nowhere in what was purporting to be their consumer line, putting the highest density screen available, you know, the biggest pixel count screen available in any product. And it took so long for uh, external retina displays to become possible just because the bandwidth to drive that many pixels, I think at the time we were on Thunderbolt 2 and it would take two full Thunderbolt 2 buses to drive an external display with that many pixels. There are at least a dozen episodes of ATP about that. <laughs> right. Uh, but so it was only even possible in a computer where you could have the GPU with a, a custom pipeline directly to the display or the display controller. Directly to two halves of the display. <laughs> yeah, it's just, there's so many reasons why, I think you're right, this does count as a truly the third, like, blow away, did not see that coming iMac moment. And it was followed up by the computer you currently own, right? Yes, the 4K, which I I personally like the screen size of the 4K. I know some people are still lamenting the death of the 30-inch cinema display, but that's just way too much for me sitting close to uh, the screen. I love the 4K display, except for the terrible image retention that I have. Oh, yeah. It's, it's getting worse and worse. Um, and I don't know what I'm going to do, because this iMac is still the fastest, best Mac that I've owned, but um, it's getting a little bit painful to look at sometimes. 
So that's uh, the state of the art in the consumer side of the iMac. And that's kind of a crazy thing to say, looking back across the history of the product line, right? Like It is the consumer machine. You go back to its inception, and it was the third slot filled in the grid of four, wait, waiting for the iBook to come in and fill in consumer laptop. Um, but now... The iMac has taken over the desktop line, let's say it, entirely, because of the failures of the Mac Pro, at least as we record this here in 2018. And so there is now a Pro version of the iMac, which is the iMac Pro released just last year. It was covered to death on ATP, talk show, and elsewhere. But suffice to say, one more time for our listeners... It's not just the space gray coat of paint. <laughs> it's it's an entirely new interior somehow saving or somehow maintaining the same case structure of the quote unquote slim unibody <laughs> that we talked about before. Right, just spin up those machines that made the uh the unibodies with the optical drive but you know, like cover over the slot. We we, we it would be fine, but no, they they went for challenge mode. <laughs> <laughs> and so there are really intricate cooling systems and pathways to make sure all the extra heat from the Xeon professional workstation processors that are inside. This whole Darth Vader respirator of fans inside. <laughs> That's so good. That's the first time I've heard that. How is the first time I've heard that? That's so perfect. It looks like it. They have that they have that thing on the product page where they cut away the back and it totally looks like his mask. That's <laughs> it's the only thing keeping those Xeons running. Uh, so the iMac Pro was mentioned in the first of two at the time of this recording, Mac Pro press summits. And this first one was in April of 2017, where uh, basically Apple had to say like, okay, we messed up. We painted ourselves into a thermal corner with the trash can Mac Pro. And we understand that there's still demand for a pro Mac machine. We're going to we're going to throw out this design. We're going to work on something new and we will bring you a new modern Mac Pro that's better suited for today's professional environment. And then kind of tacked into this press summit is, oh, we're also working on a quote unquote upgraded iMac that will appeal to a segment of pro users. And we had no idea what that meant. But uh, I think one or two months later at WWDC, they previewed it, the, the space gray Darth Vader, uh, everything. And I think it wasn't quite a blow away in moment in the way that these other models we've talked about, but I think the capability that the machine had again, in the same case with the same, you know, the thermal limits uh, was still surprising. Yeah. So I think that that rounds out the entire iMac line up to the present. And I mean, now that we look at it, what are sort of the unifying things across the entire timeline of the iMac? And the fact that, like I just said, iMac has become synonymous with desktop Mac. It certainly wasn't the case when it was first launched, but I think it's very easy to think of it that way now. And I don't know, I've been thinking about this as we were preparing for this episode, and it's what we're celebrating right now is the 20th anniversary of the release of the iMac G3, but it almost isn't the 20th anniversary of the like concept of iMac. 
Like, I feel like this has existed for longer and in other places in the product line. So I was looking back, and <laughs> this is sort of a weird thing to say, but I feel like the Color Classic was the first iMac. Um, if you look at it, it was an all-in-one in a curved plastic case that had one drive on the front, uh, media controls, and it was a consumer all-in-one that was at the low end of the product spectrum and uh, lived a very good long life. Um, I found out that people are actually still uh, modding color classics and that it really did cover a huge period pre-iMac. Um, so it was introduced in 1993 and was upgradable. And in fact, if you even cut out a little piece of plastic, you could fit a G3 processor upgrade card into it. So it really did go all the way from 1993 like through the G3 era and in a similar kind of package. Um, I mean, of course, the Color Classic is based on the Classic, and the Classic is based on the original Macintosh. And so you could really just say, like, well, desktop Macs were supposed to be all-in-ones from the beginning, and here we are in 2018, and they are. They're all all-in-ones. <laughs> I hadn't realized that about the Color Classic. I think everything you said is exactly true. And didn't the Color Classic even also have the embedded Plain Talk microphone above the screen where modern iMacs have the uh, the camera and microphone? I see a little dot, so I presume that's exactly what it's for. <laughs> if you had asked me, I would have gone with your eventual conclusion there off the start. Like the original Macintosh, even the Lisa, were all-in-one computers that you just had to plug in your keyboard and mouse and whatever accessories, and you had everything right there. But I think you're right that there, even though, again, today the iMac line is basically every desktop Mac. We don't count the Pro. We don't count the Mini. Uh, I do think the Color Classic targeting the consumer market segment in its kind of curvy lines. It had a color screen. Um, these are all things that appeal to the more casual users, right? They want something that's friendly and approachable. And I think that is the spirit of the iMac line. It It's based in the Macintosh overall roots of an all-in-one computer that does what you need it to do. It quote unquote just works. But what sets an iMac aside from other Macs is the friendliness. And I think you're right. The Color Classic was the oldest model that had that. Yeah. And it makes me think about what Apple can and might do with the iMac in the future and what I would like to see. I think that the addition of the iMac Pro is something that has given us an interesting split in the product line where this industrial design that we've seen now for 11 years, as, as we realized, um, that is clearly sufficient for doing very high-end desktop computing. And it has all of those all-in-one benefits of having the Retina color-calibrated display all in the single package. And clearly, they can get enough performance with enough crazy engineering tricks to get them out of the thermal corner to really do amazing stuff in this package. But people have pointed it out for the iMac and for really all of Apple's products that they always want to push thinner and lighter, thinner and lighter. And I'm sitting in front of an iMac now and looking at inch wide bezels all the way around and then a two to three inch 
chin besides that. And compared to Apple's other products, especially, I mean, its current products and its rumored products as we sit here in 2018, it's got a lot of wasted space. And I'm wondering what an iMac will look like in a few years if they can get it down to something that looks more like a giant iPad on a stick, because you know they wanted it to be all-inclusive with the monitor in the beginning, and that was a CRT. Then they wanted it to be all-inclusive with a high-quality flat-screen display, and we can get to that, but I'm sure we can go even more. And regardless of what operating system it runs, right? You know, I'm I'm not asking for a giant iPad, but why wouldn't the next evolution of this device be something that looks more like an iPad on a stick than a uh, TV on a stick, you know, HDTV on a stick? Um, because we see how much computing power can be put in that tiny amount of space. I don't know. I would I would love that. I would love something that uh, got even thinner and and lighter and maybe articulated like those uh like those old iMac G4s that would be that would be pretty cool. But hey, if they fix the image retention, I'll probably buy another one. <laughs> <laughs> I laugh because I I'm currently rocking the first generation of the the new MacBook Pros and similarly I'm like if they come out with a non-touch bar but has this new supposedly fixed keyboard, I'll probably just get that too. All right. Well, enough uh, future Apple talk, but I think that that gives us a good perspective on the iMac line. That uh, you know, like we said, getting those uh, getting those timelines in relative proportion to each other. The iMac has now been twenty years of the entire Mac's history. So again, majority of the Mac's history has the iMac wrapped up in it, and uh, I think it's fairly safe to say that. However many years the Macintosh has left, uh, there will be iMacs that are included as part of that. So if we've left out any of your favorite pieces of iMac history across the entire product line, don't hesitate to let us know and we can address it in follow-up or uh, retweet it on Twitter. You can get in contact with us through our website, simplebeep.com, or on Twitter at simple underscore beep. And you can find us individually on Twitter I'm at E. Cormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. And I'm at B. Suto, B-S-U-T-O. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.